Welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast, produced by the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. The CWD provides the historical context and strategic analysis to inform understanding of today's geopolitical challenges, promoting discussion through research, teaching, consultancy and public events. I'm Dr. Sophie Ambler, Reader in Medieval History and Deputy Director of the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. In this episode, we're marking the 700th anniversary of the Battle of Boroughbridge and the execution of Thomas, the rebel Earl of Lancaster, in 1322. This was the bloody end of a civil war that scarred one of England's most troubled and turbulent reigns, that of Edward II. Thomas of Lancaster was the heir and political successor of Simon de Montfort, champion of parliament and government reform. He was also the mightiest noble of the age, ruling the earldoms of Lancaster, Derby, Leicester, Lincoln and Salisbury. His domain was a vast state within a state. It would later form the core of the Duchy of Lancaster, which since 1399 has been the private estate of England's monarch. In 1322, Thomas brought these huge resources to bear in challenging Edward II. But that year, on the 16th of March, his force was defeated at Boroughbridge in Yorkshire. Within a week, Thomas was charged with a series of crimes against the King and Kingdom and sentenced to execution. On the 22nd of March, he was beheaded at his own base of Pontefract. But that wasn't the end of the story. By 1327, Edward II had been deposed. The new regime annulled the sentence against Thomas and even petitioned for him to be made a saint. With me to discuss the Battle of Bowbridge and its context are two leading experts. Dr Andrew Spencer is Fellow and Senior Tutor of Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge, and has published extensively on the nobility, politics and constitution of 13th and 14th century England. Dr. Paul Dreiber is Principal Record Specialist at the National Archives, who's been at the forefront of new research into the records and government of the era for nearly 20 years. Andrew, Paul and I are part of a team of researchers from the Universities of Lincoln, Lancaster and Cambridge and the National Archives, involved in new collaborative research on a state within a state, the making of the Duchy of Lancaster 1066 to 1422. Now, to begin then, perhaps we can just sort of set the scene, because I think it's important really to understand the quite peculiar circumstances of early 14th century England, particularly the first couple of decades. I mean, if we look back to the 13th century, for instance, we had a couple of periods of civil conflict under King John and then Henry III, but actually large periods of peace between England and Scotland in particular. And then that all really begins to change by the time we get to the early years of the 14th century. And Andrew, that's really, particularly under Edward I, isn't it, where we get this huge shift towards much more regular warfare. Yeah, that's right, Sophie. So, I mean, as you were saying, the 13th century has long periods of both internal and external peace in England, and particularly in the first 20 years or so of Edward I's reign, where there's a long period of governmental and legal reform under Edward, who's, of course, better known to history as a great warrior king, but actually for much of the time is known as, uh, as a great reformer and administrator and giver of justice. And in the 17th century was known as the English Justinian. But in the 1290s, that starts to change and, and warfare becomes endemic in England. In many ways, the war with Scotland comes about by accident. In part, 
it's because of a succession crisis in Scotland. The legitimate regime, the legitimate royal family dies out. Alexander III dies in 1286, and then his granddaughter Margaret dies in 1290, leaving there no clear heir. And Edward I is asked by the Scottish nobles and church to intercede. He was known as a great adjudicator, and he intercedes in the Scottish succession dispute between the two main candidates, John Balliol and Robert Bruce, the grandfather of Robert the Bruce. And Edward decides, everybody agrees in the end, that Edward makes the right choice in terms of feudal law in choosing John Balliol as the king. But in doing so, Edward demands that Balliol does homage to Edward for Scotland, which is something that the English kings have often claimed, but very rarely been able to achieve. And Edward takes advantage of Scottish weakness in order to do that. But that places Balliol in a very difficult situation. So that's the Scottish side of it. The war itself comes about because Edward is forced into a war with France. Philip IV of France seizes Edward's final remaining territory in France, that of Gascony in southwest France, in 1294. And that pitches England into a war with France. And Edward needs all the help he can get, basically, to fight the French. England is much smaller, much poorer than France at this stage. And so he needs not only the resources of England, but also those of the other nations within Britain. So he calls on the Welsh and he calls on the Scots to help him. And both of them say, no, thank you very much. And there is a, a war with Wales in 1294, five, a rebellion in Wales, and then also a rebellion. Well, Edward classes it as a rebellion. Of course, the Scots don't see it like that. They join up with the French in the first fruits of the old alliance, as it becomes known and invade Northern England. Edward invades Scotland, defeats them quite easily, and then tries to concentrate on France. But in doing so, the Scottish War kicks off again, the rebellion under William Wallace, the famous Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297, where the English forces are defeated. And then Edward ends up in a, essentially a 10-year-long war of attrition with the Scots, which is very, very difficult to bring to an end, in part because, as well as a war for independence, this is actually a civil war within Scotland between the Bruce and Balliol factions, those who are striving to become the King of Scots and take up the mantle of Scottish independence and Scottish statesmanship. And Edward I dies on the Scottish border in July 1307 with the war unfinished. So that's our setting the scene for the start of, of Edward II's reign. And just in those years of warfare, obviously place a huge strain on the English state and indeed on Edward I's relations with the English polity, which have been very peaceful and very productive for the first 20 years or so of his reign, but start to fray in the last 10 or 15 years. That backdrop of this war with Scotland plays such an important part in Edward II's reign, as we'll come on to in a moment, both with the pressures that it puts on the English state, but also Scottish raids into Northern England. And that ties in as well, Paul, to the other major factor in the early years of the 14th century, which is some of the worst economic and agricultural hardship that the country had seen in perhaps in centuries. It was really a terrifying time to live through for many people of the period. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, with the war coming, basically changes all parts or most parts of what is now England and Scotland. A lot of the natural resources are used up in warfare, but then there is also the economic tension. So as well as his war with France, Edward I 
has an important relationship with the cloth towns of Flanders, and there's big interruptions to that trade, particularly in the 1290s. There had been uh, some really serious epidemics among sheep, for example, in the 1280s, which had seriously affected the wool trade. The, the profits of a lot of the monastic houses had been tied up in wool, and some of these big, large new church building projects had to temporarily come to an end. Early in the 14th century, things kind of come to a bit of an equilibrium, and things start to rebalance again in the agricultural economy. But as you say, particularly from around 1314 onwards, when heavy rains come, there's basically three solid years of either extreme heavy rain or drought or bad winters. And you've got lots and lots of chroniclers recording that nothing was growing. The cost of grain shoots up from pence per bushel or per quarter to shillings, even in some places. So even what you might call the middling people are severely affected by economic dislocation, which ultimately in many areas becomes famine and sees a large loss of life. We think of the 14th century, the biggest loss of life being the Black Death. But the period between, let's say, 1315 and 1330 does also see, you know, a, a large drop in certainly England's population. Estimates vary from around sort of four and a half to six million people in around 1300. And already you've lost about two million of those by the time you get to 1330, 1335. And obviously then the, the Black Death really takes its toll in the 1340s and, and subsequent waves thereafter. Again, this is one of the factors that comes into play when we move forward to talk about the civil war under over the second, isn't it? Because the agricultural and economic hardship that impacted so much on this population has huge implications, for instance, in, in people's decision making when it comes to whether or not they're going to fight, but also provisioning armies as well. And one of the biggest complaints I think we'll come on to both in Edward I's reign, but then particularly in Edward II's reign, is the king's right of purveyance and prize. You know, the king is allowed to take proportion of individuals or manorial agricultural economy for his military campaigns. But obviously, there's supposed to be permission granted in Parliament, etc., or in Council, and often that is particularly arbitrarily taken, and that really becomes one of the central complaints in Edward II's reign against the arbitrary actions of the Crown against the people. And to provide some figures to some of the things that Paul was saying, a historian, economic historian called Bruce Campbell did a huge survey on grain yields in the 14th century. And the grain yields in 1316, 63% of the average between 1300 and 1349. So in 1316, England is producing less than two thirds of the normal amount of grain that it's producing. Paul was talking about the population. Lots of economic historians have thought that England was already overpopulated in the early 14th century. And then suddenly you have this massive loss in 1316. 1315 as well, it's 74%. And 1317, 89%. So there's three successive years where it's well below the long-term average. And that, as Paul says, leads to famine and disaster, just at the moment of great political and military disaster as well. Yeah, and then just after that, of course, after the kind of the famine era, we start to get better harvests. Then the agricultural population are hit by epidemics of animal disease, which again really hits production, dairy products, and also meat products for, for sustenance, both of armies and the rural population. It's a double whammy in around six, seven years of really terrible climatic and epidemiological catastrophe. Well, this is worth bearing in mind when we come, of course, to talk about the big political military players of the day and, and thinking about King Edward II, because on the one hand, 
he's perhaps one of the most notorious kings in, in English history, certainly of the Middle Ages. And he came a proper in very dramatic fashion at the end of his reign. But he was also dealing with unprecedented difficulties. I mean, Andrew, can you paint us a little bit of a picture of, of Edward II? How should we see him as a king? As you say, he doesn't have a great reputation. For many historians, I think he's fairly high in the stakes of worst king of England ever. It's somewhat, in parts, unfairly maligned. Edward is clever, a lot cleverer than people think he is, and is pretty good in a crisis. He's able to think his way out of, of a lot of difficulties, but he's lazy and is not really focused on the business of government or war in the way that his father was or the way that his son would be or the way basically you have to be in order to be an effective king. And he's more interested in unaristocratic pursuits than those that the nobility normally engage in jousting, um, tournaments, hunting and hawking. Edward likes um, swimming. He likes ditch digging, roofing, which massively confuses everybody around him. Nowadays, he'd be a king with a common touch. But in those days, that's not necessarily what people wanted from their king. And so he doesn't really get on terribly well with most of the magnates of his generation who've grown up around him, with the exception of some favourite. He lavishes affection and lavishes gifts on particular people. And at the start of his reign, it's a man called Piers Gaveston, who is a foreigner. He's from Gascony. Uh, he'd been given to Edward as a sort of companion, elder brother type figure by his father, Edward I, who came to regret that decision and exiled Gaveston before Edward II became king. First thing Edward II does when he becomes king is bring Gaveston back, make him Earl of Cornwall, which is one of the wealthiest earldoms in the land. And Gaveston becomes a key political bone that is fought over between Edward and the magnates in the first few years of his reign. So Edward, in a way, is summed up by the Articles of Accusation, which are the deposition articles of Edward II. Of course, it's a very partisan source, but I think it gets to the heart of the complaints that many people had about his kingship. So they call him incompetent to govern, and they say throughout his reign he was controlled and governed by others who gave him evil counsel, without being willing to see or understand what is good or evil or to make amendment or his being willing to do as was required by the great men and wise men of his realm, or to allow amendment to be made. So it's this sense of counsel. Edward doesn't listen to the right counsel, which is something that they really go on. His pride and obstinacy, that's another thing that they pick up. And then at, at the end, they say his cruelty and his lack of character, he has shown himself incorrigible and without hope of amendment. It's summed up quite nicely in a way by the Vita Edwardi Secundi, which I suspect we will come on to talk about, which is one of the major chronicle sources for the reign. When Edward III is born in 1312, the chronicler says, well, I hope he gets all these wonderful characteristics from all these great kings of the past. And the only thing he can really come up with for Edward II is, well, I hope he's tall and handsome like his dad. That's a bit of background to Edward II, a man not really suited for the, the difficulties of becoming king. And yet a man who is fiercely proud of being king, he sees the dignity of kingship, he sees it in himself, he really, really feels that he is the right man to do the job that he's been born to do. That's right, and he doesn't like being told by everybody else what to do. And, and I think that's where a lot of the dispute about Gaveston is about, because the nobles are telling him, you can't have this bloke, and he's saying, well, he's, he's the bloke I want, so you can all shove off. Thank you very much. 
Well, you mentioned that the sources for Edward's reign and his kingship. So, you know, the articles of deposition being one and some of the chronicle sources being the other. But Paul, you work particularly as well with the government records, most of which are housed at the National Archives, of course. But it's worth stressing, I think, perhaps for people who aren't so familiar with late medieval England, just the the depth and the breadth of the source material that is available to tell us what Edward's government was like or or what England was like in this period. Could you give us a bit of a picture of some of the highlights of that material? Yes, obviously I'm very lucky that I work at the National Archives, which is the archive of English royal government and then British royal government from the medieval period onwards, from the 11th century onwards. By the time we get to the early 14th century, bureaucracy, the creation of records, record keeping has really flowered. And now there is an enormous amount of material that is captured in writing and that was preserved by the organs of state. So obviously the Chancery, which is the main writing officer secretariat, that keeps roles on which are recorded, lots of the outgoing correspondence from the Crown. So anything that was kind of public business that had to be publicly proclaimed, whether that be appointment of a sheriff, say, or the arraying of forces in a county, would often be sent out under what they call letters patent. So letters that were sent out open with the King's seal hanging from the document, and that would be publicly proclaimed. But then there were lots more private business in what were called letters closed, which were kind of sealed shut and then only opened by the recipient. Now, of course, a lot of the original letters don't survive, but copies were made in rolls annually. In some cases, as the, the business gets bigger, more than one roll per year. And those survived. They, they were kept with virtually without the gaps, really, all the way through until the 19th century. And actually, the, the patent roll, for example, is still going. The role of parliament is still going. There was obviously a recent controversy about whether we should continue using vellum for that, for example. But outside the chancery, then the exchequer, which is the main financial office of government, that has an awful lot of really, really fascinating material relating to all aspects of royal government, whether it be military, whether it be the royal household particularly. So we get some really, really good insights into what the royal family are buying, wearing, eating, where it's going, where it's moving around the country, to whom it's sending letters. Some of the best kind of manuscripts we have are what we call the wardrobe books or wardrobe accounts, really nicely written up final account books, often with deerskin covers, little indexing tags. They're really amazing survivals. But then also the law courts, the criminal pleadings in King's Bench, the civil pleadings in the Court of Common Pleas, and lots of the heirs that go around the country trying cases locally, they were all kept again by the, those law courts. And then they were kept, they eventually became part of the National Archive in the 19th century. And they really give you insights into the kind of activities, the criminality, which again, there are parts of Edward II's reign, there are real issues, particularly locally with criminal gangs, for example. Particularly in the Civil War period, you get really good documentation about what's going on locally, how the national becomes local, and how the local political rivalries impinge or become infused with national political rivalries. But then there's also things, we're really fortunate that a project around 20 years ago run by the sadly late, much-loved Professor Mark Ormrod um, created a a database which is available through the National Archives catalogue of around 17,000 original petitions to Parliament, which kind of give you, in many cases, the voice of the people. I'm working on an article recently, which we think probably has the the youngest petitioner in there. There's a girl from Lincolnshire who is six-year-old. She petitions the the Crown because her father was executed by some some local men in in Nottinghamshire during the, the Civil War. But you can get all the way up from the community of the realm of England petitioning. I mean, there's a vast, vast array of material here and elsewhere 
that can kind of give you insights into almost any aspect of life, politics, government, the economy that you want. But again, locally, if you're looking for how, particularly when we go back to talking about the agricultural economy, lots of manors kept records, and we have details of when those manors came into the crown, for example, of estate accounting. As Andrew said, Bruce Campbell and others have been able to extrapolate national, in some cases global figures from these very brief cursory, but very richly detailed manorial accounts of stock, of dairy products, whatever it might be, the receipts and expenditure going out. And then also, you know, when properties come into the king's hands through forfeiture, often you get lots of property that's inventoried. So you can see, particularly towards the higher echelons of society, what they're consuming, how their lands and estates are operated. That might be a good moment to compare that huge weight of government and administrative source material that we have for the Crown and, and for the government of the country at large with the governmental and administrative source material we have for the barons of the day. Because one of the difficulties is that where we can track, particularly through the chancery material, the movements and activities of the king on a day-to-day basis, we often don't have that same level of detail for somebody like Thomas of Lancaster, Edward's chief opponent, so it can create this imbalance. But in Thomas's case, we do have a huge administrative archive to draw on as well, thanks to the creation of the Duchy of Lancaster. But that's also housed at the National Archives Pool. Indeed, yes. Obviously, we, in certainly the medieval period, the biggest kind of private estate and the private estate archive in the country was the archive of the Duchy of Lancaster. And that was brought to the crown in 1399 as Henry IV, Duke of Lancaster, became king, but it remained the private estate. Eventually, it contains all of the constituent elements and their archives. So particularly in Thomas of Lancaster's case, a lot of his household accounts that were drawn up and submitted to his receivers general and others in the early 14th century, a lot of his estate accounts survive. So we do get a bit better picture about Thomas than we would do about some of his peers, about their movements, their consumption, what their estates are bringing to them. John Manicott, who wrote the big biography of of Thomas, I think he says, I might be wrong, Andrew, it's about £11,000 a year was his annual income at its height, which is an enormous amount of money. Most English earls, and they're the richest of people in in the reign, have about between two and £3,000, so he's beyond even the richest of his contemporaries. Yeah, and he has numerous centres brought to him from the various earldoms. So obviously you've got Pontefract in Yorkshire and those sort of Connorsborough in that area, which eventually come to him. But then you've got Bolingbroke in Lincolnshire, which comes through his marriage to the daughter of the Earl of Lincoln. Then you've got places like Tutbury in Staffordshire. But then obviously the Earldom of Leicester brings Leicester. You get Kenilworth as well. He is very much, as Sophie said in the introduction, the political, the economic heir to Simon de Montfort, who is the great baronial figure of the 13th century but much richer than Montfort, which makes him in, in many ways even more dangerous than Simon. Yeah, it's a level of wealth that Simon de Montfort could only ever dream of, you know, what he could have done with that level of cash. I think Simon de Montfort was probably a cleverer man than Thomas of Lancaster, more politically clever at least. Much cleverer, yes. As much as Edward II is at the controversial figure, Thomas of Lancaster is as well, and there's been lots of I suppose that there's all sorts of shades of opinion that one could have on Thomas and his motivations for opposing the crown and and his behaviour throughout the conflict. But Andrew, you've you've argued previously for a more balanced view 
of Thomas, particularly looking at some of those wonderful chronicle sources from the period. Yeah, so I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the Vita Edwardi Secundi, which uh, I mentioned earlier is, is the people say the best chronicle we have for the reign, certainly the most detailed. And I think the, the chronicler is less astute than, than many historians think. But Paul was talking about the way in which the government collects all those archives and they're all there in this great run of records. The Vita is a freak survival. We're so lucky to have it, this major narrative source. So it had belonged to a lifelong collector of manuscripts in the 17th century who'd sold it to a lawyer in the Inner Temple. It's the only copy of the Vita that, that we have. And in, in 1729, he lent it to a guy called Thomas Hearn, who made a transcript of it, gave it back to the owner. And seven years later, it was lost in a fire. It's happenstance, just seven years before it disappeared forever, it was written down. And so we've, we've got it. There are a few gaps in it. Unfortunately, most frustratingly, in the aftermath of Burbage, the aftermath of Thomas of Lancaster's execution. But we do have his comments on the execution. But he talks about Lancaster. And that was where, in a way, where my, my more sort of sympathetic views about Thomas came about. In that, I mean, Lancaster is a deeply problematic personality and deeply, probably deeply unpleasant in lots of ways, as indeed many medieval nobles are. But he finds himself in an invidious situation of being the one man that everybody looks to in the first period of the reign. He starts off actually very much in, in Edward II's camp. Uh, he's Edward's cousin. He is also uncle to Edward's queen, Isabella of France. So he has this absolutely fantastically well-connected as well as being very wealthy. Um, so there's no reason at the start of Edward II's reign to think Thomas of Lancaster is going to be the great opponent. And in many ways, his sort of drift into opposition is helped along by his father-in-law, who, as Paul said, is the Earl of Lincoln, who is the establishment figure of Edward I's reign, Edward I's best friend, but sees the ship going astray with Edward II and, and Gaveston, is trying to sort of wrest control back onto an even keel. And Lancaster finds himself in support of his father-in-law. And then when his father-in-law dies in 1311 and he inherits the earldoms of Lincoln and Salisbury and moves from super wealthy to mega wealthy, Lancaster becomes the main figure of opposition and the man who in the end kills Piers Gaveston. And we'll come on, I think, to talk about the ordinances of 1311 and how all that works. But when those break down in 1312, Gaveston comes back from exile for the third time. Lancaster and his main ally amongst the nobility, Warwick, arrest him, take him to Blacklow Hill in Warwickshire and Lancaster chops off his head. And just to give you a flavor of how the Vita describes this, he says that someone in the future will be unsure why Piers was killed by order of the Earl of Lancaster rather than of the other earls. However, he should understand that in killing Piers, the earls of England had undertaken a difficult task, unlike anything that has ever happened in our time. For they put to death a great earl, whom the king adopted as a brother, whom the king cherished as a son, whom the king regarded as a companion. Therefore, it was necessary for the one who should prosecute such a deed to be great. Hence, Thomas of Lancaster, being of higher birth than all of the others, and so more powerful than the rest, took upon himself the risk of this business and ordered peers after three terms of exile as one disobedient to three lawful warnings to be put to death. And the Vita is absolutely convinced that this is the right thing to happen in 1312. He said everyone's delighted that Piers has been executed. And now finally, maybe Edward II can concentrate on becoming king. So Lancaster takes on that role. And it's not to say he didn't hate Gaveston, because he did. 
because Gallatin was really rude about him. He called him a churl, which is the equivalent of calling him a peasant. But Lancaster takes on that risk, as the Vita says, of doing what, in the opinion of many, had to be done, which was to get rid of Galveston. But in doing so, rather than ushering in an, a period of peace and concentrating Edward's mind back on ruling, instead, it turns Edward's mind to revenge. And Edward and Lancaster now become major figures of, of hatred and suspicion towards each other. And a stalemate develops really for the next 10 years until we get to Boroughbridge. At the same time as we have, I suppose, one way of seeing that is a competition for for resources or for access to the king and we can see this argument about who gets to counsel the king or who's close to the king as a perennial issue through the middle ages but this is a very extreme version of it but at the same time there are some big political constitutional issues at stake as well for Thomas and you mentioned the ordinances Andrew could you tell us a little bit about those what was sought through that program? Yeah, so I mean, the ordinances of 1311 have both deep roots and short roots. So the short roots and the thing that most people I think in 1311 are thinking about is the very long clause in the middle of the ordinances, which is all about Galveston uh, and, and getting rid of Piers Galveston. But there's lots of other stuff in the ordinances as well about who should appoint the king's ministers, when should the realm go to war, you know, how do we oversee the activities of the king's ministers and things like that. And, and so it, it, it stretches back over a very long period, back into the early 13th century, Magna Carta, then the, the reforms in the reign of Henry III, the provisions of Oxford, and then some of the reforming documents in the crisis of Edward I's reign at the end of the 13th century as well. So this is part of a very deep history of dealing with kings who are inadequate, are not providing the sort of kingship that they should. And this is an example of trying to restrain the king and trying to force him to behave in the way that the realm expects. And the mechanism which they use is parliament. War can only be declared in parliament, something that still isn't true today, but the king's ministers have to be chosen, appointed, and then reviewed in parliament. And lots of other bits in the reforming document are about the role of parliament. And one of the really interesting things about the ordinances uh, one of the key figures is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Winchelsea, who'd been one of the chief opponents of Edward I in 1297 through to his exile in 1305. But most of the Lord's ordainers, i.e. the lay magnates, are men who had been very close to Edward I, headed by the Earl of Lincoln, as we've touched on, but also Thomas of Lancaster, Henry Percy, Robert Clifford, all men who had been around Edward I in his last few years, and many of whom, of course, also had been key to prosecuting the war in Scotland, which has gone to rack and ruin in between 1307 and 1311 when the ordinances come about. So in the aftermath of the ordinances, if we can see the political programme that they represent, as you say, Andrew, sort of stretching back in, into this longer past of attempts by subjects to address the problem of what to do with a government when government oversteps the mark. But also, we've got this very immediate political problem of Piers Gaveston that Thomas deals with in uncompromising fashion. And as we start to move closer to the conflict of 1321 to 2, I suppose one question might be, didn't Edward learn his lesson? And is there an opportunity there to put the government of the kingdom back on track? But of course, it doesn't go that way. And in particular... Edward picks up a new 
pair of favourites in the dispensers pool, which causes the next sort of big crisis of the rain. Andrew's talked about Edward's favourites, but actually there are many in this decade that actually come before the dispensers. After Gaveston goes, of course, the major real problem is the war in Scotland actually goes catastrophically bad. As we all know, the Battle of Bannockburn in June 1314 really means that Edward has lost any authority to govern, really. That's where the efforts to restrain him become a lot more severe. And in 1316, Lancaster is elected as chief councillor in Parliament. But of course, in the meantime, Edward has developed close friends such as William Montague, Hugh Audley and Roger Damery, baronial figures, who seep into the close circles of government and start hoovering up patronage. Not quite to the extent, obviously, that Gaveston ever did, and I don't think the affection is there in the same way. But again, this sort of insidious intrusion of men who the greater political community of the realm would recognise as peers, but not necessarily as deserving of that level of favour. Now, it's only really from around, let's say, 1317, 18, that you, you find two individuals who are much more dangerous and much cleverer getting into the, the corridors of power. So these are Hugh Dispenser, the father, and Hugh Dispenser, the son. It really gets complicated because there's another Hugh Dispenser who's the grandfather, and then another Hugh Dispenser who's the, the son, who we call Hu Chong to make him a bit more distinctive. Now, Hugh Dispenser, the elder, is one of Edward I's, again, I think quite close baronial friends. He fought alongside him, been one of his close advisors, was a respected figure. He sticks with Edward throughout the early part of the reign. Hugh Dispenser, the younger, his son, plays a part in the coronation, and Edward I, before he dies, as a mark of respect to Hugh Dispenser the Elder, he marries Hugh Jr. to Eleanor de Clare, who is his granddaughter and Edward II's niece. So it is that close family relationship. But it's only until about 1318 when Hugh Dispenser the Younger is made Chamberlain after a political negotiation, which ends in what they call the Treaty of Leek, where actually there's a, a rapprochement agreed between Thomas and the king. But after that, despite the attempts by both sides, really, to build kind of a compromise ruling council. Hugh the Chamberlain gets very close access to Edward, and he starts to really build up his own personal landed wealth. And it's when he starts to intrude into the Welsh marches, particularly, and tries to take on the lords of the Welsh march on their own turf, in their own legal framework, that he really comes into problems. And that's really when things become very, very sticky and a civil war then becomes inevitable. As well as Thomas of Lancaster was a major political player, we have this group of great men in the borderlands between England and Wales who have, I suppose it's worth saying, that they enjoy a particular privileged position in, in the kind of powers that they're legally able to access because they basically run the borderlands and have particular sort of status and privilege. And they're also known for being very tough, very ruthless, very warlike men who patrol this militarised zone. But they get drawn in to this conflict in a major way, partly through opposition to the dispensers. But who are we talking about here when we talk about the March of Barons? What group does this represent? Whether they see themselves as a complete group, I'm not quite sure. But there are some big figures like the Earl of Hereford, Humphrey de Boone, and then there's some of the major barons the Mortimer family, for example, the Cliffords. Then there is Thomas's own brother, Henry of Lancaster, who's in Lord of Monmouth. They rule over a patchwork of lordships, each of which has its own internal administration, its own internal laws. And the law of the march 
is where, in theory, the king's writ should not or does not run. And you hear from the stories of royal messengers being sent packing, having to eat not only the wax seal attached to a document, but the parchment as well, because the king's writ doesn't run there, so that the king has no authority over them. Around 1320, there's a problem in the succession to the lordship of Gower, which is basically where Swansea is. And there are various suitors for this, including the Earl of Hereford, the Mortimers, um, John Mowbray. And effectively, with the king's connivance, Hugh Dispenser Jr. takes the lordship of Gower. He himself is one of the heirs to the massive earldom of Gloucester. So the Earl of Gloucester, who dies at Bannockburn, has several sisters and actually favourites are married. So Dispenser, Audley and Damery are all married to the three sisters. So Hugh Dispenser is also Lord of Glamorgan. And so he's already got this march of presence, but he starts to try and build this block of territory in South Wales, which, of course, as another marcher lord, you can only see as an affront and as a potential threat to safety, security and stability of your rights, your lordship in that part of the world, which in theory operates outside of royal government. As we move into the early 1320s, we see the marchers really building up this baronial opposition to Edward II, partly alongside Thomas of Lancaster as this combined opposition to the king. But how do we see Thomas of Lancaster's role in all of this? Because on the one hand, we've painted Thomas as this tremendously wealthy, tremendously powerful magnate of the day, who has the potential here to join forces with the barons of the Welsh March to put up perhaps what could have been one of the greatest coalitions against the crown in English history. But we get to a point by the spring of 1322 where that's all broken down and the whole enterprise ends in failure. But I suppose Thomas's role in this is perhaps quite contentious because we're not quite sure what line he's taking, what's motivating him and how his decision-making is set on course. So what's the kind of issue there, Andrew? So a lot of it comes down to the execution of Gaveston and Edward's reaction to that, in that, as I said, many people came together to produce the ordinances, but for many people, what the ordinances were really about was Piers Gaveston. And once Gaveston was dead, they naturally gravitate back towards the king and try to put things back on an even keel. And Lancaster, with his friend Warwick, find themselves very much on the outside. And Warwick dies in 1315, and Lancaster is then left really rather on his own as an outsider figure. And the Vita spends much of the 1310 saying, oh, if only we could get Lancaster and Edward together and everything would be all right. If the only these people around Edward, i.e. Damery and um, Audley and the other favourites, would stop whispering poison into Edward's ear, then it would all be okay. And then actually, as time goes on, he said, well, actually, there are people around Lancaster who are doing the same. And Lancaster starts building up this huge affinity or retinue of knights. And at one point, he has probably around 50 knights that he's personally retained, which is a huge, massive number, well beyond what one would normally see even a great medieval magnate having. And he's doing this out of fear. He is frightened of what Edward II is going to do. And so he is trying to build up support for himself, particularly in the Midlands and in the North, where his main power bases are. But in doing so, he is pursuing a very aggressive type of lordship, which leads to rebellion in, in Lancashire in 1315 which is put down fairly bloodily, where the rebels are saying, actually, we're on the king's side against Thomas. And Thomas is left in a rather embarrassing situation where he has to deal with it. And then he has a, an even more sort of catastrophic 
personal disaster where his wife, whom he never really got on with anyway, but his wife runs away with the knight, the retainer of another magnate, the Earl of Surrey, who is Lancaster's neighbour in Yorkshire, uh, Lord of Wakefield, neighbour to Lancaster's great lordship of Pontefract, where Lancaster spends a lot of time. And then there's a private war between Lancaster and Surrey, and basically Lancaster outmuscles him and, and steals Wakefield and a whole load of other lands that belong to the Earl of Surrey. And so he is building up his power base, but he's also building up a lot of enemies. So for much of the period between the late 1310s up until 1321, really, Lancaster is the outsider. And it's not until the marches start getting stirred up by Hugh Dispenser that Lancaster is able to find allies again. And they come together in this rather uneasy alliance in 1321 of a whole load of people who had been members of the establishment in the 1310s who find themselves eased out by Hugh Dispenser into the cold again. And there's Thomas of Lancaster welcoming them with not particularly a, a warm embrace. And so there is this uneasy alliance that develops in 1321, which leads to the exile of Hugh the Elder and Hugh the Younger where it gets to the point where Queen Isabella has to go down on her knees and beg Edward II to get rid of Dispenser because people have realised actually the problem now are the Dispensers and we have to get rid of them. So Edward very reluctantly agrees to their exile and Hugh the Younger goes on to a, a short-lived but very successful piracy campaign in, uh, in the English Channel before coming back in early 1322, which is where the war kicks off. You talked about this uneasy alliance between the March Barons and Thomas of Lancaster. And as we move closer towards the Battle of Boroughbridge and that campaign in March 1322, how does this all break down? What happens, really, that means that this campaign against the king ultimately ends in failure? in Boroughbridge, because it could have gone differently. And I suppose one thing we have to ask is how much of that was down to Thomas personally, and how much was it an insuperable task to wage a war against a king on this scale? Because Edward's got huge resources as well. This is, I think, Edward's best moment of the entire reign. He handles it brilliantly. What he does is he separates his opponents and takes them on piecemeal. So he starts off in the far southeast, a long way away from where Lancaster has any lands, with a man who has only recently joined the opposition and whom Lancaster hates, a guy called Bartholomew Battlesmere. And Edward approaches Leeds Castle, which is not in Yorkshire, but in Kent, uh, which Battlesmere has been given by Edward the second previously and now Edward turns up and says you have to hand it back but even more cleverly he doesn't do it himself he sent his wife and says you have to open the doors to my wife Battlesmere closes the gates and there's a siege and what Edward does from that point is to say this is it it's me it's the king or it's the rebels whose side are you on and for the vast majority of people it's on the rebels side the marchers appeal to Lancaster and say, we need to go to Battlesmere's aid. And Lancaster hates Battlesmere and says, no, I'm not going to. Lancaster is not keen on coming south. He wants to remain up in his heartlands in the north, not least possibly because he's hoping for aid from the Scots. And so he's not willing to come to Battlesmere's aid. Leeds Castle falls relatively easily. Battlesmere is dealt with. Then Edward sweeps into the marches and starts dealing with them. They see the Royal Army coming and most of them 
decide I'm not going to fight and they put down their arms. Most conspicuously, the Mortimers, the two Roger Mortimers, Roger Mortimer of Wigmore and his uncle Roger Mortimer of Chirk, two major marcher lords in, in the middle march around sort of Shropshire area, they surrender and are imprisoned in the Tower of London. And so by the time Lancaster has finally sort of come south into Staffordshire, Edward has already defeated the marchers and Lancaster is now left basically with his own affinity and a few marcher escapees like the Earl of Hereford and a few other rebels. And they're not sure what to do. And they turn north and start running away from the king's army. And that's where they suddenly meet another royal army at Boroughbridge coming from the north, led by a man called Andrew Harkley, who is the Sheriff of Cumberland. And so it's not the main royal army that they end up facing with Edward II at Boroughbridge. It's actually a much smaller royal force raised by Harkley. And Lancaster's own affinity at this point is starting to splinter. He is losing his men. Many of them are not prepared to fight the king, and they either switch sides or they just melt away. And so the rebel army or the baronial army at Boroughbridge is not one where morale is high, I think it's fair to say. You mentioned Andrew Harkley, but it's worth saying that Thomas of Lancaster and the Earl of Hereford are up against a tremendously impressive, hardened military expert who bring very impressive force to bear against them. But you end up with this situation at Boroughbridge where the Earl of Hereford is killed, people are put to flight, and Thomas ends up taking refuge in point of fact in this ignominious flight from this royalist force. And it's the end of this baronial opposition. But that kind of leads us on to the next stage of the story, which is perhaps more terrible and more terrifying than what had gone before in this, the, the retribution that is brought to bear. Paul, could you put us in Edward II's shoes here? His forces have defeated the rebel army. What's Edward's plan here? Well, as Andrew kind of intimated earlier, revenge has always been on Edward's mind, first and foremost. This is the hour he's been waiting for. And he gets fortunate because on the campaign, which leads just a couple of weeks before Boroughbridge or the week before, Thomas actually does face Edward's royal army near Burton in Staffordshire, and he unfurls his banners, which is an act of war. So now Edward's got him. He can actually wreak his revenge on Thomas and his followers. So obviously, if Thomas is basically kind of given a effectively a show trial, really, probably in his own castle, and is beheaded effectively on the, the king's record rather than there being a trial. Thomas isn't allowed to speak in his defence. This is one of the key things about this. It's just Edward's kind of record. You, you've clearly a traitor. You've brought all this against me. You've constrained the king for a long time. You have to die. Lots of Thomas's allies are then kind of either caught in battle or are hunted down. So, for example, Bartholomew Battlesmere, he's captured at Stowe Park in Lincolnshire in flight. Various other barons are captured and executed at York. There's some executed at Bristol, at Gloucester. All over the country, for several years, there are what are called contrarians' bodies hanging from civic gates. They're a very visual symbol of power of the king, of wronging the king, of what happens to you when you take on not only the crown, but you take on the person of the king in Edward II's case. What he then does, once he's got the bloodbath out of the way, lots of the lesser figures, of which there are you know, hundreds across the country, retainers, members of affinities, manorial officials, whatever it might be, a lot of them are put to fine, which means that they have to offer a large amount of money, varying grades, in order to have their freedom and to have their lands back. He will allow people to have their freedom and have their lands back, but it is at a price. And of course, that price is not only financial, but in theory, it's loyalty for the rest of his reign. 
ultimately, of course, that leads to disaffection. Edward is a ruthless individual. And he had, with Dispenser at his side, the next three or four years are really about Edward building up his own wealth, his own finances, off the back of the punishment of rebels, the forfeiture of their estates, they're farming them out to people who will be willing to pay a good price for them, rewarding of some followers. So it, it's a very, Natalie Fry, the historian, called it the tyranny of Edward II. Now, I think we can be slightly more nuanced and generous than that. And I think we'll come on to some of the political and the, the legal things that Edward tried to achieve in the next couple of years. But you get a very real sense that when Edward's reign comes to an end, it is because ultimately what has happened in the previous four years and Edward and the dispensers and their henchmen's activities against the magnate community, the baronial community, and effectively, ultimately, then the country at large. And, and a lot of this is set in train. It, Paul focuses, I think, brilliantly there on the political and, and the personal element of, of what happens. But a lot of it is set in train in the immediate aftermath of, of Burbridge at, at Parliament, uh, again, in York in 1322. The writs for which are sent out shortly before the Battle of Burbridge. So Edward is so confident that he's already won, that he's already calling for Parliament to gather in York, not coincidentally, the heartland of where the rebels are. They gather there and Edward promulgates something called the Statute of York, or has become known as the Statute of York, which repeals the ordinances. And it's really interesting in lots of ways. It starts off, basically, what Edward does is to get all of the ordainers, the Lord's ordainers who are still alive, to go back over the ordinances and say, do you, do you think you were right about all of this? And they all go, oh, no, Your Majesty, uh, on reflection, maybe we weren't. So it's not only on his own authority that he is destroying the ordinances, but those of the ordainers themselves are forced to unpick what they'd already done. And then there are two other elements, I think, which are really interesting in it, in that he talks about not just the ordinances of 1311, but that the statute harks back to what had happened previously. So it says it was found in the said parliament that by the things thus ordained, i.e. the ordinances of 1311, the royal power of our Lord the King was restricted in a number of things, contrary to what ought to be, to the weakening of his royal lordship and against the estate of the crown, and also because in time past, by such ordinances and provisions made by subjects concerning the royal power of the ancestors of our Lord the King, troubles and wars have happened in the realm, whereby the land has been in peril. So by this, it's saying it, it, this isn't just something that's happened now. This is the crown's, what I've called elsewhere, the crown's historiography of the 13th century. So it's looking back on the events of Edward I's reign, those of Henry III, those even of King John, and saying the trouble wasn't that kings kept getting out of concessions that they were made. It was that people tried to place restraints on royal power in the first place. So this is a big statement of royal power. And then the final part of it basically says, you can't ever do anything like the ordinances of 1311 again. Anything that is attempted will be null and of no sort of validity, I think is the, the word in, in the statute. And this is all done, as Paul was pointing out, in the shadow of these traitors, you know, hanging their heads and their limbs, hanging from the walls of York. So it's, it's not just, well, you can't do this again. It's look around you and this is what will happen if you do. And so potential opponents of Edward II and the dispensers over the next few years are really left with very little option at all. And, and in 1322, they, they sort of think that actually Lancaster's the problem. And if we can get rid of Lancaster, then things will be okay. But actually, Lancaster, in many ways, is the last bulwark against against untrammeled power of the dispensers and, and Edward II. And so they jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. And they have very little options left open to them in order to deal with 
for dispensers. Really, the problem finally everybody realizes the problem is not anybody else, but actually Edward II himself, and they're going to have to deal with that. And Edward's clever enough in the statute of York and Parliament to actually confirm some of what they call the good points of the ordinances, particularly going back to Magna Carta. So he's clever enough to acknowledge that there were certain things that have been imposed on kings that he's happy to go along with. But then, of course, in the next couple of years, you get things like the royal prerogative being restated and reframed. You get the royal household, which has often been a bone of contention with the magnate community, revised in a way that obviously favours the king. This is, as Andrew said earlier, this is Edward at his cleverest, at his most energetic, laying out what he sees kingship as and how the community should see him as king and, and should see the crown. We have this moment in the aftermath of Borough Bridge and in the Statutes of York where we see Edward at his most terrible in the sense of terrifying and most impressive at the same time, this resurgence of the crown under his leadership. But if we go back to Thomas, where on the one hand, he has this terrible defeat at Borough Bridge and followed by this show trial, as you said, Paul, and, and his execution, which we might think, you know, is the, the cataclysmic end of his history. But in a way, you could say that by his death, he emerged victorious from that conflict because he was made into a political martyr against the crown. Absolutely. He's fortunate that Henry of Lancaster, his brother, isn't involved in the conflict. So he's broad at the time. And so there is a community of disaffected individuals in France in the 1320s. I think it's Edward's biggest single moment where he makes the biggest error. In 1322, he has the chance to execute Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, and he doesn't do it. He pardons them. And in 1323, Roger Mortimer is one of the few men to escape from the Tower of London. And he goes overseas and joins these rebels over there. Thomas's legacy is continued outside the kingdom, but also within the kingdom. So I think in St. Paul's, there are supposedly a variety of miracles that happen around this tablet erected to the ordinances by Thomas. And then in 1327, a petition is made to the Pope for his canonization. And then after that, a cult develops in Parliament in 1327, Edward's deposed. The community of the realm of England request from Pope John XXII. An inquisition is taken into the life, behaviour and reputed miracles of Thomas of Lancaster, formerly Earl of Lancaster, who's been buried at Pontefract. And reports of whose miracles have caused people to come to venerate him in his last resting place. So actually throughout the 1320s, there are still people who are willing to go to Pontefract, possibly put their own lives on the line to witness these miracles that the martyr Thomas is performing. And that then continues into the, the reign of Edward III. And then in Pontefract itself, a chapel is built in the saint's honour. And throughout Edward III's reign, the Archbishop of York is constantly having to worry about people going to venerate these miracles when Thomas hasn't been canonised. Thomas isn't actually formally canonised. There's an office that develops in the 1320s. It gives us sort of a hint of what they say about Thomas. They say he's called Earl Thomas of an illustrious race. He is condemned without cause. He was born of a royal bed, who, when he perceived that the whole commons were falling into wreck, did not shrink from dying for the right in the fatal commerce. 
O royal flower of knights, preserve ever from evils this thy family, bringing them to glory. He takes on this martyr's crown, and ironically, you say into Edward III's reign, in, in Richard II's reign, you end up with Richard II on the one hand wanting Edward II to become a saint, and Richard's opponents again pushing the cause of Thomas Aquinas. He never actually makes it, but the cult continues until the Reformation. In 1323, the Archbishop of York actually has to issue an inhibition to anybody making a, what they call a public act of veneration or devotion at the tomb of Thomas of Lancaster in the parish church in Pontefract or in any other church, because the archbishop, who's William Melton, who's one of Edward II's closest clerical friends and boyhood friends, has been led to understand that people have gathered there to hear preaching and to discuss his supposed miracles, it being forbidden to accept such miracles without due discussion and diligent examination. And the people who are doing this are therefore at the risk of being duped and their soul would be imperiled by pursuing these miracles. Paul mentioned Thomas's brother, Henry. So Henry's treading this very fine line in the 1320s of, on the one hand, loyalty to Edward and the regime, but also actually propagating, to a certain extent, the memory of his brother. He sets up a cross in Leicester. He keeps petitioning Edward to, to have his brother's lands back. In the end, he gets the earldom of Leicester, ironically, Simon de Montfort's old earldom, probably the least wealthy of the earldoms that Thomas had held. But he gets that one back, but he doesn't get any of the others. Edward keeps all of the Lancastrian lands for himself and launches in, in 1322-3, goes on a lovely sort of victory tour around all the Lancastrian estates. But Henry is, is in this really interesting, delicate position throughout the 1320s of loyalty on the one hand, but also possibly in communication with, with some of those lords and those rebels who take up residence in France and are, are, are plotting a way to come back. That brings us on to the dramatic climax of Edward's reign. And you mentioned, Paul, earlier the escape of Roger Mortimer of Wigmore from the Tower of London, which is perhaps one of the most cinematic moments of the reign where Roger is able then to conspire with these other enemies of, of Edward II. But it ends in the most dramatic turnaround of events, particularly involving Edward's own queen, yeah, absolutely. So in 1325, Isabella is sent to France to negotiate a treaty with her brother. In the previous year, she'd had some of her estates and powers removed from her due to the escalation of conflicts in Gascony with the French crown. Now, while over in France, she manages to inveigle Edward to send his son also over as a, another envoy in these peace negotiations. So not only has Edward lost his wife, but also his son and heir are detached from him on the continent. He was quite keen to go to France to perform homage and do these peace negotiations, but we're told that Dispenser doesn't want to go and therefore doesn't want to be left alone because you know what's going to happen if the king's out of the kingdom. Dispenser's vulnerable. So Eben Dispenser's remain in England and the queen and her son are on the continent. Also over there is Edward's youngest half-brother, Edmund of Woodstock, the Earl of Kent, and there's this grouping that develops in the court in Paris which kind of emerges out of the shadows very late in 1325, early 1326. And there start to be rumours of what's going on and what the Queen's up to. Edward is very defensive. Isabella starts to insinuate that she won't come back because somebody's intruded into her marriage, that being the Spencer. You get a great series of letters, aren't there, from Edward to Isabella and to his son, basically saying, you need to come back. And if you don't, very bad things will happen to you. 
Then there are counter rumours for which historians have picked up on about a relationship between Isabella and Roger Mortimer, who by that point is kind of the leading rebel figure, the most senior kind of rebel, and obviously having escaped the tower, he's the leader of the, the rebel band, if you want to call them that. He also has lots of interesting contacts across Ireland, Wales, his mother. She's put in a monastery because you know she's accused of having these unlawful assemblies. His own children and wife have been dispersed to monasteries. His sons are in the tower. He becomes this great spectre over England. And there are lots of letters that go out to royal officials on the coasts not to allow letters to come in from him and anybody else on the continent and to look out for him. And there's inquiries. The Bishop of Hereford, who's one of his political allies, there's an inquisition against his activities. Ultimately, when it comes to it, Isabella and Mortimer and they're kicked out of France. They end up going into the Low Countries and they form a marriage alliance between Edward III and ultimately becomes Philip Ropena, who's the daughter of the Count. And the Count and other German mercenaries are brought together in this invasion force and numbers vary between about 700 men and about 1,500 men who land on the Suffolk coast on September the 24th, 1326. Edward appears to be unprepared for this. Nobody goes to meet them. There's insinuations that they've come to some kind of agreement with his eldest half-brother, Thomas, Earl of Norfolk. And then effectively, this little invasion force has free reign in East Anglia. It moves around silently, quietly by night. It starts to move to Paris and Edmonds, to Cambridge, and starts to pick up momentum. There's no kind of resistance met. And the insinuation is, of course, that there's been communication from outside with inside and that people knew they were coming potentially and that any kind of resistance melts away. They don't meet resistance, really. Edward, who's in the tower at this point, abandons the tower around the 1st, 2nd of October, and he starts to flee west. He starts to go, we think, probably towards Despenser's strongholds in the Welsh marches. By that time, of course, he's got Glamorgan. He's got lots of estates over there, and he can rely on some raising forces there. But also, of course, Edward, as Prince of Wales, he never relinquishes that title to his son, has the potential to raise forces in the Principality. There's also a thought that he might be trying to escape the country completely. Now, eventually, Edward gets to Chepstow, boards a ship, his confessor prays for a fair wind, and eventually the fair wind doesn't arrive, and he gets washed up on the coast near Cardiff. Whether he was intending to go a bit further around the Welsh coast to arrive in Swansea and then raise forces there, we're not sure. I have a, a theory that he may have been trying to escape to Ireland to raise forces there, because, you know, his writ still runs in Ireland for quite some time after he is removed from the throne. There is no conflict, no blood is shed at all. Edward calls on lots of individuals who, as I mentioned earlier, had had to pay a heavy fine for their release. They appear to owe him no loyalty at all. And when the Queen arrives and takes the Great Seal, she's issuing lots of letters under her own seal, under that of her son. They start to act as a government in waiting, as a sort of a shadow government, and really, Edward is left wandering, ultimately on a Welsh hillside, abandoned by all apart from Hugh Spencer. The younger, Hugh Spencer, the elder, having been captured in a siege at Bristol, being put on trial and being executed for treason, with his coat of arms reversed as supposedly a badge of dishonour. He'd been made Earl of Winchester in the meantime by Edward. Edward is eventually captured, possibly at the connivance of one of his Welsh supporters, we're not quite sure, and then... He is taken to Henry of Lancaster, ultimately. That kind of ultimate irony is that Henry gets to hold the captive king. Hugh Dispenser is taken to Hereford, where he is 
basically subjected to possibly the most graphic, most horrific execution in the Middle Ages, I would say. I don't know whether you agree, Andrew, in that he's you know, put on this big high ladder, eviscerated, his genitalia are cut off, burnt in front of him. He's cut down while he's still alive and then is ultimately just chopped into little pieces. The community of the realm of England wreak the revenge that Edward wrought, but they wreak it on one body. As you say, he ends up being captured by Henry of Lancaster. One of the great ironies of it, or one of the last men who is around Edward II with the dispensers, is a man called Thomas Wither, who had been a close associate of Thomas of Lancaster, had fought at Boroughbridge for Lancaster, and had eventually sort of found his way into royal service via Hugh Dispenser. And he's one of the last men with Edward, and he may well be involved potentially in handing uh, handing Edward over. And another irony, one of the very last writs uh, letters patent that Edward II makes is to another ex-Lancastrian affinity member who fought at Boroughbridge against the king and had worked his way back to relieve him of the fine that, that had been imposed upon him. It's this sort of last desperate attempt to get as many people as possible on, on Edward's own side as, as the regime is collapsing around his ears on his, his flight westwards. In the Mortimer retinue, there are two individuals, Edmund Hakelut and Gilbert Talbot, who are, again, very late before Edward jumps ship. They are given orders to basically man the barricades in the marches. And looking back, you think, well, what on earth was he thinking there? But of course, you know, they'd obviously given him no reason to disbelieve loyalty. They'd reap the rewards of that association with Dispenser, but are presumably playing a double game, been receiving intelligence, or at least when it was known the invasion was, was coming, they naturally reverted to where their natural loyalties were. This brings us on to the terrible end of Edward II's reign. Perhaps the ultimate victory for Thomas and his brother, and it's a terrible cycle of revenge, and that's one of the occurring themes, isn't it? We see throughout Edward's reign as this back and forth and the terrible strength of feeling against political opponents that leads people to go further and further down the road of extreme action against their opponents. That's right. This is possibly one of the most violent periods in the Middle Ages, that sense of vendetta and sheer violence in the localities that happens. There's a historian of Wars of the Roses who recently has been thinking about the 14th century. And she said, actually, you know, having looked at the 14th century records, having spent most of her career looking in the 15th century, she was shocked to see just how badly things fall apart in the early 14th century. And absolutely, this cycle of, of violence and vendetta, some of which actually goes back to the dispute between the dispensers and the Mortimers, goes back to the Battle of Evesham and Simon de Montfort in, in the 1260s. But it continues after Edward deposition, Edward's death in September 1327, and then Henry of Lancaster falls out with Roger Mortimer, and there is a, a near rebellion that takes place, and Lancaster then is placed under a huge fine of £10,000 for his continued good behaviour. And it's not until October 1330 when Edward III himself seizes power from Roger Mortimer in a coup at Nottingham Castle. And Mortimer then is subjected to not quite as bad a fate as to Dispenser, but still hanged, drawn and quartered at Tyburn in 1330. And that brings to an end this cycle of violence. And, and there are very few survivors, really, from the, the top end of the aristocracy who make it into the 1330s. The Earl of Surrey, he's the main man, isn't he? Yeah, he's the great survivor. But there aren't many others. Not many aristocratic families survive throughout this period without losing at least one member. 
well, as you say, Andrew, that Edward III's seizure of power hopefully brings this terrible era to a close. In the midst of that then, so as we began with in 2022, we're marking the great anniversary of the Battle of Borough Bridge and the execution of, of Thomas Earl of Lancaster. What would both of you say was the significance or not significance of Borough Bridge and Thomas's execution? How big a part did it have to play, not just in the events of Edward II's reign, but in the longer history of medieval England or, or the British Isles? I think it's a crucial moment in the law of treason. You've written very eloquently, Sophie, about the death of chivalry under Simon de Montfort and the role that the bloodletting at the Battle of Evesham leads to. Um, And there's a sort of pause after that with the success of Edward I's reign. But from Edward II's reign, when things start going badly, Thomas of Lancaster's execution, I think, marks the moment where it is no longer acceptable to oppose the crown and to expect to get away with your life in doing so. And Thomas of Lancaster's execution is a massive watershed in that moment. It is hugely shocking to everybody. They are massively surprised. And I think Lancaster himself is massively surprised at the fact that he ends up being executed. I don't think that was what he was expecting at all. But he's the first English Earl to be executed by the king since 1076, so 250 years. But then after that, it becomes routine. Now you can work your way back, and many nobles do work their way back into royal favour, having had a member of their family executed. But opposing the king is now likely to lead to execution. So I think in the law of treason, it's very important. Clearly, it leads to the first deposition in 1327, and that's really a crucial marker in the political community of England being willing in extremists, and it is in extremists, but in extremists to contemplate the deposition of an anointed king. So this is a a massively, I think, important and relatively unknown period in English political and constitutional history that has much more importance than just the, in some ways, the sideshow of what the terrible fate that happens to Edward II, which is what everybody really takes away from this period, that there are much more important things, I think, at play. I also wonder, we think about Edward III, he's obviously, he's lived through this himself. He's lived very intimately, and then he becomes very intimately involved with what happens to his father, then the, the minority under which you know his own royal power is constrained. The extent to which he then feels he has to recast English society in a new way, and actually reverts to Edward I's England as a military state, governed a bit more communally, bringing people along maybe. Those mistakes of his father's reign, although I think does revere his father from a personal perspective, that does make England a totally different country in 1340 than perhaps it would have been without Boroughbridge, without this, as you say, this horrible bloodletting, this real vendetta, the ratcheting up thereof, and the effect it has at the top level of society. And Edward develops the Order of the Garter, that close personal community around him, which has both militaristic and religious overtones. A new vision of nobility is forged out of this, which had been developing, I think, under Edward I. And then you have this horrible interlude in in Edward II's reign where they all fall out with each other. And and everybody sees the disastrous consequences of that. And then so Edward III is able actually to create this idea, I think, of a service nobility, both in war, but also actually increasingly, as Edward III's reign goes on, in governance of England as well, which creates the late medieval English polity, for good or ill. But he's also able to forgive and forget in some ways. I mean, obviously... Edward executes Roger Mortimer in October 1330, 
Roger's son and heir, Edmund, while he doesn't live long enough to become Earl, he does get his lands restored relatively quickly. He's kind of exonerated from his father's actions. The stain on the family, the earldom which Roger creates for himself, which is one of the things that really creates issues with Henry of Lancaster. He becomes Earl of March, which, as we discussed earlier, you know, Earl of March suggests that you're trying to impose yourself across a broad area in a different legal jurisdiction than simply being you know, Earl of Gloucester or Earl of Norfolk or somewhere. Roger's grandson is then rehabilitated. He is able, through service, through his own brilliant military career, to actually have the Earldom of March restored. Edward III could have just abandoned that, abolished it with no thought, and that Earldom is gone. But he's patient enough. He shows affection and appreciation for an individual's service to him and what that might then mean for the political community. That's right. But then in another way, the, the shadow of Boroughbridge continues on. It's one of the things we're looking at, I think, in this project that we're developing on the Duchy of Lancaster, in that it shatters the Lancastrian estate. And Henry of Lancaster spends a long time trying to piece it all back together. And it takes a long time. Pontefract doesn't come back into Lancastrian hands until the 1340s. And, and some, some lands, including the Lancastrian marcher lordship of Denby in, in North Wales, never comes back into Lancastrian hands. And the events of Boroughbridge and the restoration of the Lancastrian inheritance in, in the Parliament of 1327 is something that Richard II starts to harp on and on about in the 1380s and 1390s. A great article by Chris Gibbon Wilson, which focuses on Richard II's view of the Lancastrian inheritance. And Richard II comes to regard the Parliament of 1327, where Edward is deposed, but also where the Lancastrians are restored, as a great stain on the crown's honour which he wishes to expunge and, of course, in the end leads to his own deposition in 1399 and his replacement by the Duchy of Lancaster. We can see there what a transformative episode Boroughbridge and Thomas's execution is, really, in the centuries of English and wider history. Andrew and Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the War and Diplomacy podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, um, although rather grisly in many of the details. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Discover more from the CWD on our website, lancaster.ac.uk forward slash CWD. There you can also find details of Lancaster's MA in International and Military History and MA in War and Diplomacy.